Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 200 for November 4th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about why we continue to do CRM despite the hardships we all talk about. So go reactivate your live journal account because you're going to have a lot to complain about and because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Sonia in Utah. Hey. Bill in California. Hello. And Stephen in Calgary. Hi. All right, so if you're hearing this in real time, this is releasing on November 4th, 2020. So hopefully you're just listening to this podcast, you're chilling, you know, it's like a calm Wednesday and you're just having a good time and you're not out burning cars and riding in the streets because the election was last night. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Who knows what happened? We're- we don't do that, man. What? We never, not, not the United States. I know, I know. Turns out Bill's in my basement, you know, right now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's October 25th right now. So we're all still on the, the high anticipation side of the election, whereas everybody listening to this is on the other side of the election. And and maybe it's the same world we were living in. Maybe it's a different world. Who knows? I think either way, it's an interesting time. So yeah, I usually feel like it's a combination of like idiocracy with like, <laughs> I don't know. All the time. Yeah. I feel that way all the time. American history X with some Star Trek and like, you know, <laughs> a little sprinkling of this, a little sprinkling of that, some leave it to beaver. And then there you go. You got 2020. There it is. There it is. So, all right. Well, today we are going to focus on a question that was actually recently asked by a listener who heard our 200th episode. And I mentioned in that episode something that I do quite often. But before I before I get to that, before I get to the question, I just want to point out this guy, his name is James and he works at NASA. And that'll be relevant here in a minute. But I thought it was super cool that he's like an aerospace engineer or something, works at NASA. Heather's father, she mentioned, she said this on the show before, is like a, you know, high energy theoretical particle physicist. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like, why, why are these people who have these like jobs that are completely a departure from the kind of science that we do in CRM and archaeology? Why are they interested in this kind of podcast? And that's really what I asked in episode 200, because I offhand mentioned a lot of times in our podcasts, why would you listen to the show if you were in the industry? Because we don't we don't really explain ourselves because our audience, you know, because you always have to think who's your audience when you're doing a podcast and our audience for this show 
is other CRM professionals, right? Or people at least interested in the business from a, I want to be in that business standpoint, whether you're going to be and you're a student or you used to be and you want to come back, whatever the case may be. Those are the people that we generally are trying to speak to. But we have apparently a, a decent enough audience outside of that that has nothing to do with this field. And they are interested in what we do. So all I can say is welcome. Thanks for listening. And I'm glad that you get a little window into how the history of well, not only this country, but many countries is actually recorded. A lot of people think it's universities and university professors going out and doing things. Sorry, Bill. But I mean, I think I saw a statistic a long time ago that said something like 85, 90% of archaeology done in the United States is by CRM archaeologists, which makes sense. It's a business. Whereas universities are focusing on a lot of times sites that aren't even in this country. And when they do focus on sites in this country, it's like one site for the next 25 years. So it would make sense that the volume of work being done, when we say volume of work being done, we mean volume of history being recorded is by CRM and CRM archaeologists. So anyway, James's question was basically, and I'm going to read the last part of his email here. And he said, I would like to understand more of the reason people continue to work in the field despite the hardships. He says, is there knowledge before they get a degree that this is hard when they do the field work? And I think that's our job is to tell him yes, but he says, what is the dropout rate? Is it just in people's blood to do this, like sailors who need to be out on the ocean despite the risk? Also, fundamentally, is CRM just trying to meet regulations, you know, do a job and get paid, or is it actually resulting in stopping slash relocating the ventures that initiated them, be it a highway, shopping mall, or homes? So basically, you know, the first part of the question is, why do we do this despite all of the you know, crappy things that we talk about constantly, you know, the bad pay, the the low per diem, the double occupancy hotel rooms, the no benefits. I mean, why, why continue to do this work? And I'm interested in your guys' thoughts on this. And Stephen immediately raised his hand. So he gets to go first. I think the short answer is because we don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> you know, that was kind of in my head, like we're trained to do this. So it's like, what else am I going to do? That kind of thing. Yeah, we go through school and and it's like, well, I have this degree and then you get a job doing it and you do it and it's fine because you're 22 and stuff like that. And you you just keep doing it and building up the experience because experience is what counts as far as getting a job. And I think the people who want to get out, it's like, well, how does one get a different job? Right. I don't know about you guys, but I've had one retail job. That's my only non-archaeology job that I've had since I graduated undergrad. Right. We've talked about this before, too. In fact, I've got a webinar over on the DigTech YouTube channel that I had recorded. It's not really a webinar. It's more of a course I recorded on getting out of archaeology. And we've talked about that before. Like, how do you translate the skills that you have in this job into skills in the, quote, real world? So something outside of archaeology. And Stephen, I think with your project management experience, not that I'm trying to, get to tell you to get out, but if, you know, crap hit the fan, it's like you've got project management experience, you've got, you know, computer skills, GIS abilities, things like that, that could translate into, I don't know, other, other usable skills. So I think that's where it is. Bill. That's something I've been thinking about for quite a while. You know, I, I think probably the first bout of difficult employment CRM, I mean, that was like when it was definitely start thinking about, well, is it time for me to get out of the game? I mean, when am I going to get out of the game and all that stuff? But also for the first time ever, I have actually a path towards a retirement. <laughs> so, so now like I'm trying to, you know, keep my job and move forward and keep managing my retirement, but I'm also kind of seeing what happens with older professors. And I kind of appreciate if there's any 
older professors out there listen to podcasts and they're listening to me. Thanks, of course, but I don't want to end up like a lot of the older professors. You know, I don't want to die behind a Zoom screen giving a lecture somewhere or, you know, suffering through multiple ailments in my old age, trying to struggle through, you know. I don't know if you've ever met Michael Schiffer. He was at Arizona for a long time. Right. But as I was applying to be a PhD student, he was kind of just retiring and he was going to be with his kids and his grandkids and he still had his health and everything. And like just watching someone like that when they were, you know, still could have taught for 20 more years if he really wanted to just to retire Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, that's, that's something that now all of a sudden becomes a dream because when you're doing CRM, you're kind of thinking about how am I going to keep myself alive and feed myself as I keep going through layoffs and, you know, job hopping to different positions and trying to move to different locations. And, you know, I can imagine how years and years go by. Then you end up like all the PIs that are older in CRM that are, they've been doing it 40 something years. And I wonder what their, you know, retirement strategy is like, are they going to get out anytime soon? Mm -hmm. But I guess maybe it's because I'm, not quite there that I don't fully have a grasp. However, now at this point, I am actually thinking about, you know, one day I will retire. And then at that point, what am I going to do? You know, I won't be teaching forever. I'd like to do something different. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, though. Is that true? You always hear people just working, I mean, almost working up until they die when they're a professor and not in a bad way, right? But because they love it. So you, you get into that like emeritus status and you can just like do research and, you know, be an advisor and do different things. I don't know if that pays at all or if emeritus means you're unpaid and living off your retirement. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. It does. I mean, there's these different stages of being involved with the department and getting yeah. paid in different ways to teach classes and being called up, you know, when people have sabbaticals or, you know, folks have to take leave or just they don't have enough professors. So they will call on the emeriti. But then there's also classes that they want to teach that, you know, finally, they no longer have to teach the stuff for the department, they can just teach whatever they feel like. So, you know, that's definitely great. And then continuing research. But you know, I think, you know, realizing now that it hurts to dig shovel probes way more than it used to and uh, (laughs) (laughs) doing CRM that I'm just going to continually, there's going to be a perpetual layoff system and I just keep doing it forever because I love archaeology and finding a way to get back in. You know, that stuff eventually is going to get old. And then, you know, I love my job, but eventually there's going to be a day where it's just not the same as it is right now. And, you know, at that point, when do I want to get out? Yeah. Sonia, what are your thoughts on this? I kind of came into archaeology from a a different standpoint because I'm a type 1 diabetic. I tend to look at the future a lot and evaluate where I'm going, what I'm going to be doing, how I'm going to do it, how I'm going to live, whether or not I'm going to have health insurance. Do I have a good enough job in order to pay for my care, quote unquote care? So I went into archaeology knowing that I loved it, but I also looked at it as, all right, This is something that I can do, but I'm also good at these things. So I actually went out and got two degrees, one in geology and one in archaeology. And in doing so, ended up with a really great set of skills to work in both geology and archaeology. I'm a geoarchaeologist. I've worked as an oil and gas geologist. I've worked as a mining geologist. Like these are all things that I've done and that I know that I'm good at. So I made a plan to have kind of a backup plan back when I was like 18 or 19. But that's because I came from worry. I came from fretting about, you know, how am I going to take care of myself when I'm older? So I continue to do archaeology because I love it. I really do. I know that 
James was curious. It's like, why do people stay in this job if the pay is for crap? Well, <laughs> the pay continues to be crap, even with 25, almost 25 years of experience. But, and I know that I could go do a job where I could get paid a hell of a lot better, but I continue to stick with it because I really do love this job. You know, that's why I continue to do this. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because you could go and do something else, right? And get paid a lot more. Yeah. I'm kind of experiencing that right now. And it, I just sort of fell into it because of a part-time thing that I just, you know, it, it's just something that kind of fell in my lap last fall. And and I'm still a contractor, but I'm kind of doing it more full-time, at least from an hour standpoint. I'm putting more time into it than I was before. And I'll tell you what, it's probably paying three times the amount I ever got paid in archaeology yeah, in CRM. Exactly. And to be honest, I am using, as I mentioned with Stephen, I am, I am using a lot of skills that I feel like I honed as I've been an archaeologist, just coming up through the ranks, all the little things that you learn and do and things that you do. I mean, obviously, I'm not using shovel testing skills. I'm, I'm implementing software, but I'm dealing with clients. I'm managing my time. I'm, you know, I'm doing full project management, basically, from beginning to end for half million dollar clients, right? Like they buy this software and I have to onboard them and manage all these people and say, you know, we're going to do this and this and this. This is the time frame we're going to be on because you paid for an implementation and this is the time that you need this by. So we need to have all these, you know, milestones. And that's, if you don't do that in archaeology project management, then you're going to have construction companies and everybody else breathing down your neck, not to mention the agencies saying, where's the report? You know, those are all skills that you can hone and learn in one field and, and apply to another. So, but I'm curious before we end this segment, Stephen, you mentioned that, and I, I think it was partly true and partly in jest that you don't know any better, right? Like some of us just like, this is how we were trained and this is what we do. But I'm curious as to what the what you think the, the, the no-go turnaround point was. <laughs> like how, how far in do you have to get before you're like, oh, I can't go back now. I can't turn around and do something different. I'm going to do this regardless, you know, because you, you moved to Canada. You know, I don't know how long it took to find a job before you moved, when you moved to Canada, but there could have been a point when you were thinking, man, maybe I should do something else. I don't know. But I'm just wondering at what point you thought in your career, when you look back on it, that, yeah, I'm going to do this the rest of my life because this is what I know. I don't know that I've made that decision yet, honestly. Right. I feel like my perspective of like work is that, you know, like this is the job I have right now. Whether this is the job that I continue to have in the future, you know, that's up to circumstance, right? Like if if the bottom drops out of the market and there's no call for archaeology in the future, then, you know, like I don't have a job. It's not uncommon for people to have two or three careers mm -hmm. throughout their adult life. I'm still on my first one, which is the weird part. So like, you know, I'm, I'm already kind of abnormal in, in that respect. I think that for a lot of people, you know, they, they make that shift like within the first three years, right? Like, you know, they go and they do it for three years and they're like, ah, I really don't like this. This isn't what I you know want to do. I'm thinking about the future. I want to be able to settle down. I want to, you know, be able to buy a house. I want to, you know, do all these life goal things and this job's not going to let me do it. So I think a lot of people get out at three years. And then I think there's just a gradual attrition as, you know, like if, if you have a field job with, within CRM and you can't find a way to transition to like a desk job or lab job, then, you know, eventually, you know, maybe, maybe you, you're like, wow, like this really hurts. Like Bill was saying, it's like, yeah, you know, I can't keep doing this on a daily basis. You know, every once in a while, it's, it's still fun, but, you know, it starts getting hard. 
And, you know, that could also be a driver in the future. You don't see a lot of 60-year-old hardcore field archaeologists. I mean, there are some. Um, sure. But, you know, compared to the 35-year-old market, you know, it's like, where did all those 35-year-olds go? Mm -hmm. They're not here now. And so, I don't know. I'm kind of open, I guess. <laughs> well, I think I'll just close with this, too. I think one thing that gets people out is the desire to start a family. Or maybe they did start a family, and they're realizing that they can't continue the lifestyle that they want to live while they're doing this job. Because, you know, to be honest, unless you did find that desk job or the job that just doesn't include a lot of field work, which there's not very many of those, you know, you got to work for the state or you got to work for another agency or something where, where you're not doing a lot of the field work in order to really have a stay at home or, you know, a lot more home time kind of thing. So if you're a field tech, even if you're working for an agency or something like that, but if you're a field tech, there's a good chance that you're out in the field a lot. I mean, you're a field tech, you're not an office tech. So it's in the job title. And I think that's one of the reasons why people cycle out. So let's take our first break. Doug has joined us and we will get his opinion on this on the other side. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code CRMARC. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to episode 201 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast, the post-election edition, otherwise known as hopefully not the apocalypse edition. So, <laughs> and Doug has joined us because apparently... Scotland goes through daylight savings time. I think we do it next weekend or possibly the weekend after that. I think it's oh next weekend for the United week. States. You just reminded me, man. Duh, that's, <laughs> one, that's one major shift from moving from Arizona. Oh, yeah. I think daylight savings is the one thing Arizona is doing the best of any <laughs> state in the union. Get rid of it. Right? Abolish it. What are we doing? <laughs> well, yeah, Doug's already gone through it, which is why uh, he joined us a little late, kind of got the times mixed up, which I think we do every single time there's a daylight savings shift around the world. So, But Doug, I think you probably saw the email that we were talking about here in Slack. But basically, the question is, why do we continue to work in this field despite all the hardships we constantly tell people about? What keeps you going? What drives you? What keeps you doing this? Or 
I think I would, if I were you, I mean, you might talk about, you know, your diversification because Sonia mentioned that too, because you've kind of diversified from just pure archaeology into some other things too. And that's pretty cool. But that's, that's what I was thinking for you, but go ahead. What keeps me in archaeology? I like it. I like it. And it doesn't have to be as bad as it can be at times in the (laughs) sense of like, there is a specific type of person who could do archaeology for 30 or 40 years who fits it perfectly and really loves that sort of nomadic going from project to project, company to company, you know, if it's over here in the UK from country to country, or if it's in the States, you know, from state to state, or I guess if you're in Canada, Providence to Providence, is that right Mm -hmm. uh, there, Stephen? I think so. Oh, and territories as well. I think you guys have some territories Mm -hmm. and provinces for them. It, you know, it's a beautiful, amazing career and it's a great thing. It's not for everyone. And I mean, I think most of us on this have sort of, as you were mentioning, diversified and gone into different sort of aspects of it. But I think one thing that maybe we probably don't highlight enough is that there is not just one job in archaeology. There's a lot of careers and a lot of people Mm -hmm. have very interesting, varied careers. So I'm sure we've highlighted some of the downsides, but that's probably for a very narrow set of jobs that we're, I mean, we mainly focus on the sort of field work end of CRM, but there's a lot of other things, compliance, working for the state or the BLM, working for museums, there's public archaeology, there's a lot there. So for me, I mean, I, I like it and I have found little niches that fit the sort of career I'd like to have and what I want mm-hmm. to do in terms of family and kids and stuff like that. And that doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of field work. I do go out into the field, do some varied projects and stuff like that, but it's not a big portion of what I do but I'm quite happy with what I do. And I think, uh, just thinking about it, I mean, we just did our 200th episode last week, not last week, two weeks ago. And it was a lot of discussion about, you know, how things have changed and whatever. But actually looking back at the 200 episodes, I'm wondering if we've maybe not highlighted enough of the diversity inside of archaeology and the careers you could do. I do kind of think this comes back to also how we present the profession. I think there's at all different levels. We also don't train people to sort of grow archaeology or grow CRM. Mm -hmm. We we train people to how to do a very narrow set of skills that fits a very very specific niche demand. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think most of us have sort of found, you know, most of us hosts on the podcast I found ways around that, but I do wish that people, instead of leaving the profession, because usually when people leave, it's, it's not a happy breakup. Yeah. If they could do it, we could find ways to retain people by, you know, figuring out ways to expand what we do and change what we do to be, yeah, I don't know, more inclusive of different groups and more inclusive of different professional and personal goals. So I think part of what also keeps me in is working towards that, is working towards 
showing that there's a different way of doing archaeology and that you don't have to do a very narrow job set and that we can actually make the field better. Sounds really corny, you know, uh, as I say it, but no. is it is what it is. And I think what keeps me going is not... Ironically, it's not the past that keeps me going. It's the future. It's it's what we will be doing in the next 10, 20, 30 years that keeps me going. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. It's not the past. It's the future. There you go. But that's that's great, though, because I, I feel like I'm a little bit the same way, you know, with all my promotion of digital archaeology and things like that. Like, I really, I really want to see this field grow and, as you said, expand and, you know, grow into... I don't know, grow into something that's more in line with other fields that we work with, you know, biology, geology, things like that, and really increase the amount of things that we can do in this field and therefore increase the amount of, you know, data that we're collecting and the quality of the data and things like that and do it in a in a nice, concise way. So that's the kind of things that, yeah, you're right, that also keep me going. And I don't think I fully answered the question either. I mean, the reason I got into all this was because I like to you know, going back to the past, I like to understand the where things started, right? I, I've always been kind of an origin sort of person. In fact, when I was in, in my undergrad, I was really interested in paleoanthropology. And the only reason I didn't pursue that is because, well, to be honest, I was a I was an older, you know, undergrad. I didn't go to really start that anthropology course until I was, I think, 27, 28 years old. So a little bit older than the average student, not that much older. But I just looked at it and I was like, paleoanthropology is what I would do. I studied everything the Leakies did and, you know, Tim White and Donald Johansson and just like the whole crowd and even went to Africa and did a field school in Olduvai Gorge. And I think the only reason I didn't continue was because I really didn't have good advisement on that. <laughs> and really the only thought place I thought I could go was ASU, Arizona State. And I applied there and didn't get in. Turns out I found out later they accept like three people a year out of the 10,000 applications they get or whatever it is. But, you know, it's a really hard, it's a really hard program, especially the paleoanthropology program to get into. So I shouldn't have taken it personally, but I was like, well, I guess I'll do something else. And I ended up in CRM and I still, I still like, you know, especially studying prehistorics and things like that. And just, even if we don't go all the way back to the beginning of, you know, when did people first come to the Americas, but you know, when did people first come to this Valley that I'm standing in, you know, when did people first do this? When did they first do that? What are the firsts? And I'm always very curious about that. And that's what, that's what kind of drives me. But, you know, things change too. Like Doug said, you know, you diversify. And now that I've been doing this whole podcasting thing for the past, you know, nine years or so, the APN keeps me going. Education keeps me going. The the desire to tell other people about what we do, because I don't feel like, A, we're very good at that. And I don't feel like we have too many avenues to do that, that are publicly accessible. We publish papers, we go to conferences, but getting this information about about what we do is not easy to do in public ways. I mean, there's social media, there's blog posts, and those are all great things to help talk to people and communicate with people. And podcasting is just one more way to do that. And I think that's a, a niche I've fallen into and I, and I enjoy it. Doug, your hand's still up. Was that from last time or current? <laughs> yeah. So it was just to clarify and diversifying, but I think you touched on it quite well with your whole, you know, we should move into things like podcasts and different range of that. It was just to say when I was thinking like different careers, I look at CRM as more holistic, as almost literal cultural resource management. And that is managing res cultural resources. It could be at different levels. At the moment, it's mainly stuck in, you know, section 106, basically, mainly for 
construction and development, and that's that's where we're at. But I would I would hope uh, I I see a lot of it happening slowly, not as fast as I'd like to, but um, archaeology diversifying in many different ways. So like a good example would be like the Florida F plan, which is Florida Public Archaeology. Network. Network. Yeah. I apologize to them if I totally screwed up their name. No, that's right. But yeah, there, there's them. There's an organization. So there's one in Oklahoma, and I'm, I apologize to them as well because I am totally <laughs> blanking on their name. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of these organizations out there. And, you know, it's good to see people growing in different careers that is not just being out and doing construction and clearing clearing sites so they can be bulldozed. I think there's a lot of potential in archaeology. And also, we're a really, really young profession. Like, in the United States, 1970s, it came into it. I mean, you can push it back to the 1960s, some early stuff there, but really 1970s is when we start to exist. And we really don't get start get going till about the 80s. In the UK, effectively, it doesn't start until about 1990. I mean, there's some earlier stuff, somewhat government funded, but not like it's only been the current form for, yeah, roughly 30 years. I th- actually coming up on like the 30th anniversary next month in November is like the anniversary of the regulation that got put in that actually put it in its current form. But I mean, that's super young in terms of jobs and professions to essentially just come out of nowhere. I mean, you could argue archaeology has been around since, you know, 1800s or 1700s with Andrew Jackson or no, Jefferson, not Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was a horrible person. (laughs) Jefferson was not much better. Actually, he was probably on the same uh, same scale of of horribleness, but he did do a little bit of archaeology. And so, yeah, I mean... It's bad now, but it doesn't have to always be bad. And I, I kind of feel like, especially when people start talking about things like unions and things like that, I feel like no one's actually looked up the history of unions and the labor movement and solidarity. Generations past, generations of people getting shot and us getting Labor Day because, you know, they killed a bunch of miners because they wanted to, you know, have decent wages and things like that. And, you know, it takes a lot of hard work to build a strong profession and to build, you know, a strong union or even to build a union. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I feel like we're at the beginning of our story instead of the end that people are a bit, obviously with good reason, you want to get to the good parts, but we might have a, a ways before we get to there. Sorry. On that cherry note, I'll, I'll stop talking. <laughs> No, you're right. You're right. We definitely have a long ways to go. But I think one thing that we're kind of highlighting with what you and I were just saying, Doug, and about the public public archaeology and things like that, and then what pretty much everyone here has said is one of the things that really keeps us, not necessarily keeps us going, but keeps us in the field, which I think are two different things, because I feel like just to unpack that for a second, people that get out of the field of archaeology and end up doing something else don't do it because they don't like archaeology. They don't do it because they don't love history and archaeology and what they were doing. They do it because it wasn't profitable. They couldn't make a living, right? They couldn't raise a family. They couldn't pay their bills. They didn't get out because they didn't love it. And all of us have said that we, you know, we stay in it because we love it and it's what we do and it's what we know. 
but also we have jobs doing it. <laughs> so there's that. And I think one of the ways that we've been able to keep those jobs and been able to stay interested in the business is by diversifying from when we started out as field techs, because that's one almost universal in this field is everyone starts out as a field tech with very few exceptions. I mean, there's definitely people that go from undergrad to master's degree to like a project archaeologist or something like that. That's one of the reasons why I ended up getting a master's degree because I was tired of that happening out here in the Southeast where I'm currently at. But that aside, a lot, most people I would say start as field techs and they start at that level. And if you, again, like Steven said, there's, you know, 60 year old field techs out there, but they're very rare, right? They're not the common thing. And I think most people that end up staying in this end up getting other skills and highlighting those other skills. Bill, we got about two minutes left in this segment. What do you got on this? The other thing I have to say is that folks who stay in it, find those projects or those things that they really want to keep going. I remember when I was mm-hmm. doing CRM full time, you know, you mentioned starting off as a field tech. My undergrad degree and all my background was in Native American studies. And my first sites were all indigenous sites, pre-contact sites. But I saw that there was a real niche in historical archaeology. And I also found the artifacts really interesting. So, you know, that plus being a history buff, you know, it was easier to shift over and do more historical archaeology. And then when I got to Arizona, like nobody was really interested in that stuff. So, you know, then you you kind of have it all to yourself. But, you know, that was one major shift. But every time the whole thing got real onerous, like you're out in the field too many times, you're sick of living in hotels and all that stuff, there'd be that one site that you dig that's just amazing. You find amazing stuff and it changes the way what you knew about the past in that area. And, you know, or just a project that, you know, you're really proud of what you've done, even if that's not something that you're really interested in, you still have pride in that project and that stuff have that happening, you know, every year, every other year, every other month or something like that. That's what keeps you really into it. When you find something cool and you know that you're the only one who's going to see that stuff really probably forever doing CRM. That's the stuff. The other thing that keeps you in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Doug. It was just actually a comment, Chris. I think there are some people who find out that they actually, they leave because they actually don't like archaeology or the history. Yeah. Um, but I think they leave quite quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Within the first couple of months, you, you quite quickly <laughs> figure out that it's, it's not something they like. Because, <laughs> you know, like the difference between university and CRM or actually doing archaeology can be huge. And some people can go through yeah. their entire university career and never do a field school. And then, you know, they could actually, I've, I've, I've met several people who find out real quick that, yeah, they actually dislike archaeology with a burning <laughs> passion, but they also don't like stay in for 10 years. <laughs> well, there probably are a couple of people like that, but. Well, when we come back from the break, I have an amazing story about my wife that I have, I've been holding off for years. So <laughs> I'll keep going, Doug, because I right. can't wait to I, tell this. I, I'm going to stop so I can, I can listen to the story. This sounds great. <laughs> All right. Well, we will cover that on the other side of the break. Back in a second. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right, welcome back to the final segment of episode 201 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And we are talking about why we stay in this field, why we do it what keeps us going. And Bill left us all in suspense at the end of segment two with a story he's been apparently holding on to for like eight or nine years now and, and wants to tell us about his wife. Hopefully she's not a listener of the show. Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think she has listened to some episodes, but this actually goes into the reason why I think I'm safe, right? And if by <laughs> the time we get to episode 202 and I have this new home on the couch that I'm not allowed to ever get out of. We'll, we'll now know this is the day, this is the story that finally broke everything apart. Doug, though, he mentioned that there's a lot of people who realize that they don't like archaeology. And the reason why I broke in is because I was laughing so hard because as someone who has taught field schools before, it's sad, but I I think it's funny when someone gets to field school and they realize that they can't stand it and they have like five and a half more weeks. I mean, there's folks who the very first day when, you know, the first ticks are on their pants and they're freaking out like, oh my God, why did Mm -hmm. I ever choose this? You're just kind of laughing like, yeah, that's right, my friend. I'll try to ease your suffering, but you are here and, you know, this is going to be a huge practice for you. And then you give them an interview at the end and they're just like, yeah, I'm never, ever going to do archaeology again, ever. <laughs> so my, my wife, she went to the University of Idaho also for her undergrad. We met when I was a master's student after she had already finished her degree and everything. She was working for the university. But when she was an undergrad, one of her professors, like I've mentioned before, Idaho has a great practice of getting students field experience there, you know, on campus. And I guess they were building a new dorm and it was on the location where a hundred years earlier, a previous dorm had burned down. And so they were doing archaeology in the location where they were about to do the construction and the students, they could volunteer. And some of them was part of their archaeology class. But my wife, as a young undergrad, heard that there was going to be this archaeology dig, and she was like, wow, this sounds so exciting. So she signed up for the volunteer list, and it finally was her turn on a Saturday, and she got there, and it was like, okay, here we go. And they were explaining all this history of the students who lived in the dormitory, and that they all made it out, but the dormitory burned down, and that they're looking for the remains and to figure out what it was like to be a student in like 1901 at the University of Idaho. Mm-hmm. So she's, she starts digging, and I think there wasn't the digging that was the problem it was she was screening there and they were picking all this broken glass and nails and stuff out and she was there for like two hours and all they had found was architectural rubble and they were picking all this stuff out and a couple of pieces of burned ceramics and like you know one or two buttons and she like looks at this thing that she's been doing for like three hours and it, she hadn't even made it to lunch yet and she's like yeah i think i'm pretty much done with this you know this sucks <laughs> whatever the hell these guys are doing this sucks i'm never doing archaeology again nice. also they were digging through a burned down building. So her clothes were just black with soot (laughs) and all this stuff. And she just decides I'm never going to do this again. Right. Fast forward years. We find ourselves happily married for a long time. And she went with me on a romantic trip to my field site and 
pretty much on our <laughs> 10 year anniversary day. She finds herself digging shovel probes. <laughs> uh, well, it seems like the tropics are a great place to go visit and vacation and everything. But in order to get to the beach in those Mai Tais, you have to dig with me in the forest and sweat your <laughs> you know, body apart. So she, yeah, there's, I'll never be able to live that down that our 10 year anniversary was spent in the field doing something that she said she would never do again. And yeah, so that she doesn't listen to the podcast and she never wants to know what I'm doing at work and she never <laughs> wants to hear about archaeology. She's not interested in going to a site. She just kind of does not care. She understands heritage is important as long as I don't say anything about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that brings up actually a really interesting point, Bill, because a lot of people, I feel like, probably make that decision in field school, right? Like they're an undergrad, they go to this field school, sounds like a fun thing to do. And day one, they're like, what horrible decision have I just made with my entire life right now? Oh, yeah. Uh, or maybe even a few weeks into it, right? But mm -hmm. so you, who's gone full cycle from mm -hmm. somebody who, you know, did a field school in an undergrad, became an archaeologist, and now you're a professor at one of the most, you know, prestigious institutions in the country, and you're running field schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, how often do you think about how the quality of your field school and the experience you provide could make the decision for someone's career? You know what I mean? That's huge. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it does. It, and it does for a couple of different reasons, because I've seen disaster field schools, right? So there's kind of a couple of different, you know, many different kinds of people who are field school directors. And there's that kind of director that I don't know if they're compensating for the fact that they don't get to go in the field very often. But they're a lot like, you know, a backhoe or a, a pile driver that just wants people to be out there and don't talk, just dig, hand me the artifacts and just keep working and working and working. Right. Then, you know, everyone who's out in the field, we all know, even people who have done it for 20 years, there's a different kind of miniature field society that's developed working in conditions with the same people every day, you know, it's hot or cold or hard work and all this stuff. And you're stuck with the same people, right? So you can see how all those kind of like just human dynamics are happening. And then if you're working in a situation where the person is just driving you really hard and CRM, that's different because all of the people have kind of chosen that for their job and they've already done field school and they want to do archaeology. But in field school, if you start driving students, especially those who don't care or don't want to be there hard, then that makes that social chemistry a nightmare it makes it a horrible place to be and you know students aren't really enjoying themselves and any of that stuff so you got to manage expectations of course there's folks 90 definitely 95 percent of the students i've ever taught on a field school never did archaeology for a career most of them didn't go on for an anthro graduate degree they just kind of were done i mean that was the end of their archaeology career they liked it or they didn't, or whatever, they're just done. They'll take more classes, but you'll never see them doing it for a career. And it's that 5% that goes on to fill all these other graduate degrees. And those are the folks you find in the field. So if you don't, if you don't make it a kind of situation where it's not an onerous task, if you make it an actual learning and growing situation, those those 95% of students who are never going to go on to do archaeology, they'll never forget what they've learned out in the field. And they've been with people and they experience all kinds of stuff they never thought they were going to experience. And it is a growth opportunity for those individuals, even though they don't go on to do archaeology. And that's really what kind of, I mean, you're trying to train folks to do archaeology, but on the other hand, you're also understanding that most of these folks aren't going to go on and that hopefully they'll get something out of this that they can take for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. I know we've said this many a time, but like 
field school is not professional archaeology. And so I'd also add that like there will be people who go through field school, enjoy it, want to have a career in archaeology and last maybe like two days in like CRM or in the UK we call it commercial archaeology. Like it's really different to like go from a low key sort of, you know, no pressure, here's a trial, <laughs> you know, dig, dig what you need to. You can spend like an entire month in a trench, you know, interesting stuff. Take your time to like getting up on a site and then, and then have your director be like, you know, F it out. You'll you'll see it in the profile. And the only time I want to see a trowel is when you're cleaning your shovel, sort of thing. That can be you know it's very different. So I, w- I would just add that like there'll be some people that go through field school and then still go into professional archaeology, thinking they're going to love it and absolutely hate it. It's true. Because again, there's a big difference between what we practice in training and what the realities of the job are. But some people like it more. I mean, some people really love that higher paced. You didn't just spend an entire month to go 20 centimeters down through sand. You know, it's different things for different people. Well, I mean, I think it always comes down to the fact that when you're first learning about archaeology, you're learning in an academic setting and field schools are inherently academic settings, right? And you're going from there into quote professional archaeology, not that professors aren't professional archaeologists, but you know, professional archaeology in the CRM sense. And you're, and you're not being taught by other people in that profession. Now, if you go get a master's degree and it's a CRM focused master's degree, that's different. But by the time you get a master's degree, you're already at a different level. You're at a different sort of mindset. You might still get out later on. Don't get me wrong. But at the undergrad level, you know, we, we don't really have a lot of programs where people can, really choose a, an undergraduate degree in CRM, you know, or something that's focused around cultural resource management versus just an anthropology or archaeology degree or history degree or what have you. So that's the, that's the first problem we have with the turnover in our field because they're not, they're not given that exposure, right, by the right people. They're given an exposure by a completely different industry, and then they go into this industry, and they're like, well, this isn't what I thought. Well, of course it wasn't what you thought it was. It's because that's not what you were learning. But I think the question I have for you, Bill, is when people are looking for field schools, because a lot of people are probably looking at field schools now, and there's going to be a mad rush to them because a lot of them were canceled here in 2020. So 2021, on the assumption that we're going to have field schools again, what do you think people can do to try to find the right field school for them, for what they want to do? And furthermore, how much do you think there's a difference between a field school being run by a grad student who's trying to get their dissertation done and get their research done and a field school run by a career professor who's been doing this 10, 20 years and bringing people out to the sites? Do you think one is more conducive to learning than the other? Do you think one would be better than the other for certain reasons? I mean, I think those would be two very different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because folks are going to have to start figuring out what they're going to do with field schools. And as of right now, looking in November of 2020 with, you know, COVID, I mean, big chunks of the United States, COVID is, you know, flaring up to maximum levels. There's no way we can even know there's going to be another field season in 2021. I mean, universities are risk averse organizations. And if it doesn't look like it's clearly good to go by, you know, Valentine's Day, definitely by Valentine's Day, you might see another lost field season of field schools because 
mm-hmm. you know, universities aren't going to turn us loose with a pandemic going on. But going back to your question about training in the field, yeah, definitely you're going to have a different experience if a graduate student is just getting their dissertation project versus a group of concerted scholars, including several professors who have done this several different times, right? Like those are going to be kind of night and day. I wouldn't say that a graduate student can't pull it off. One that has done CRM for a while, one that's done several different field schools. I think that they probably at that point, you know, if they're more mature in their career, they probably could make that kind of learning environment that I was mentioning before, where all people are still getting something out of it, even if they're not going to be archaeologists. But I would say that those digs where there's four or five skilled people who have done this several different times, it all work together. Not only can they share the labor of trying to have this entire field organization happen, because they, you know, you can divide up the labor. Some people are doing the housing, some people are doing the artifacts, some are doing the field, right? Like, the stuff we do in St. Croix with the Society of Black Archaeologists, there's four or five of us, and we each decide, you know, what we have the capacity to take on that year. And then, you know, we kind of like divvy up the tasks so that it's not just one individual with 20 students trying to handle this entire thing, right? So that's that's one thing. And then just the experience of seeing all kinds of crazy stuff happen on field school, because you're right, the, this is an education environment. <laughs> it is not CRM. You cannot just go there and say, you're fired. Here's a Greyhound ticket see you back in Phoenix. Like you can't do that to a field school mm-hmm. student. I mean, you, you can, if they break the law or if something else happens, but they're not getting paid. They're not an employee. You don't have that kind of relationship that you do with a CRM coworker. Right. So that whole thing is there. But you know, the other thing that we constantly, I'm, I'm always trying to balance the act is like, how much CRM could I possibly teach at a university? I mean, you know, that the, the entire, setup is not designed for the folks to learn what it's like to do CRM. Doing CRM teaches you how to do CRM. And it's difficult to simulate those experiences that Doug was just mentioning, you know, getting out of the truck one day and the person saying, yeah, we're not using trowels anymore. Here you go. You know, (laughs) your paycheck will be waiting for you on Friday if you make it out of this. Like, yeah, nobody's ready for that kind of thing. That's not what's happening when, you know, we're having ice cream and stuff on a hot day or leisurely washing artifacts and stuff like that's not, they're two different things. But also just, I think that if you had a CRM oriented program, where all of the curriculum of that entire undergrad or graduate program is just all snippets or pieces of what you need to know in CRM, I think that's probably the only way that you're going to be able to in any way build this up because folks are going to anthropology departments. We got faculty that are doing work in a whole bunch of different areas that have never even thought about CRM. And we're not talking just about the archaeologists, the other anthropology faculty that they have to take classes from. They work in fields and in other ways that there is no such thing as CRM. The whole academic mm-hmm. archaeology, that, that is the only way they can even do that kind of anthropology. And then add on the other well-rounded aspect of people taking a bunch of other courses that are outside in other fields. I mean, essentially, your credit hours are being used on giving you a full educational experience rather than you purely learning CRM. And we yeah. can't design an entire curriculum. So at best, I can teach a couple of classes we don't have anywhere to dig. We don't have mountains of artifacts to process or whatever. So it's the kind of classroom setting that's conducive to certain kinds of learning, but other stuff, like there's just no way you can really teach that without going into CRM. Yeah. Yeah. Steven. I don't know that I necessarily make the distinction between like academic and CRM focused field schools, but I do think that a more interesting d- distinction and in, in you guys 
already kind of touched on this, is the idea between a field school that's being done as part of someone's research versus a field school that's primarily focused on, you know, what you think a field school would be focused on, which is like the teaching of field methods, whether that's, yeah. you know, slow trawling or, you know, like wide scale excavation or, you know, teaching shovel tests or whatever. In, in my mind, I, I think that it would be better if, better for archaeology in general, if uh, like field schools didn't even necessarily go to an actual site right away, right? Like yeah. in having worked in like a military environment, you would see a lot of like simulated training exercises that are designed to give you the skills that soldiers are going to need in combat, right? I mean, and, and that's a life and death situation. Like life and death has nothing to do with archaeology, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> not usually. <laughs> yeah, but archaeological sites, archaeological properties are irreplaceable, right? So yeah. it behooves us to teach people, like, here are the skills, and we're going to start by, you know, discussing it from a theoretical perspective, get into simulations where you're actually doing, you know, working on the muscle memory and the physical skills and coordination, and then, you know, possibly moving on to something that's actually produces some sort of research. But I feel like in the long run, that would produce a more realistic idea of what archaeology entails, whether it's CRM or academic or whatever. Yeah, because we can't forget when people are doing a field school and they're learning how to do archaeology, they're learning on real archaeology, right? Like they're learning on a real site typically. Nobody nobody has a a test archaeology site, or at least not that I'm aware of, you know, where there's seated, like it's a seated kind of thing, because that's that's actually really hard to put together and make seem authentic, right? So they're working on real stuff, making real mistakes on people's real history, blowing through features, you know, damaging artifacts. I'm not saying they're doing it all the time, but the potential is there because you have people who are new and to be honest, don't know what they're doing. And just to wrap up here, I I, I do through the Civil Air Patrol, we do search and rescue exercises and we get up as volunteers in airplanes and, you know, do search patterns and look for people. And we have coordinating with ground control forces and and radio you know, back to base and making sure that everything is is happening. Well, before we do any of that, we have what's called a tabletop exercise where we literally sit around a table and we run through the motions of an entire exercise from, you know, the flight crew sits at one end of the table and they're simulating what they would do and the, the whole time frame is the same like the whole thing takes the same amount of time we'll spend eight hours doing a tabletop and just running through the motions but not actually going anywhere and not actually doing anything just making sure we get all the radio calls down the paperwork right and the you know the safety aspects of it and i feel like you're right we don't do enough of that in archaeology we don't do enough of that really just getting the muscle memory down and getting those basics down before you actually step in the field. I mean, you see people out in field schools that, I mean, anybody who has the money can take a field school. That's really the only qualification. Can you afford it? And then you can go to a field school, right? And there's literally no other qualification <laughs> other than that. Do you have a checkbook? And I guess that could be a problem, but we're over time. So we've got a lot more to talk about on this subject. And I think this could have spawned a few other topics that I want to bring out because I didn't get to ask Sonia, is the time of the career PI over? Because, you know, people are diversifying, people are doing things and the time of the 
company owner, the small company owner, like retiring? What does it even mean? Do you sell your company? What do you do? We don't have time to talk about that now, but I definitely want to bring that up on a future episode. So great questions. Let's talk about them. (laughs) Not now. Exactly. Not now. Not now. So with that, I think keep the questions coming in. I just got today another question based on our 200 and I haven't even read it yet because I did some traveling today. So maybe we'll bring that up in the next episode. But please, Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or you can go to arcpodnet.com click the contact button and that will send an email off to us and or you can leave a comment wherever you found this facebook twitter website whatever your podcast player of choice and we will see that so thanks everybody and we'll be back next time with 202 that's it for another episode of the crm archaeology podcast links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast which can be found at www.arcpodnet dot com slash crm arc podcast please comment and share anywhere you see the show if you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode email us use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members get some swag and extra content while you're there send us show suggestions and interview suggestions we want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere and we want to know what you want to know about thanks to everyone for joining me this week thanks also to the listeners for tuning in and we'll see you in the field Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doug's Doug's going on an old classic. He's counting down in the comments. (laughs) (laughs) Whichever one can see this. Uh, (laughs) Screenshot it. Goodbye. And then nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Never gets old. Bye, Doug. See you later, Doug. It was a a shout-out to uh, Bill there. I had to go with the classic, a countdown. (laughs) We'll join you in the future next time. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.